0: Good morning. Great morning, actually, huh? fantastic. Let me ask you, if you would, to uh, open your Bibles to the book of Romans. And uh, we are going to look at some passages uh, towards the end of Romans, first in uh, chapter 14, and then we'll flip back a couple of pages to chapter 12. And so as you arrive there, um, let me uh, invite you, if you would, to bow your heads with me. Close your eyes for just a moment, uh, but open your heart, your spirit, your mind to what God might want to say. Join me in prayer. Lord, thank you today for um, all of the ways that we've already celebrated belonging to you. Thank you for all of the ways that you have uh, demonstrated visibly and relationally uh, that we are a part of your family. Uh, thank you for the gifts of um family and all of the ways that we receive that gift. Lord, help us to uh, connect now to the story of your family told in scripture. Help us to find ways to stand in the story that Paul is telling and help us to find ways to bring that story uh, into the lives that we're living today. Lord, we ask you to speak uh, not a word that is uh, uh, dead and arcane and distant, but a word that is living and transformative. Lord, you know the work that needs to happen inside each one of us, and you know the work that needs to happen here in the midst of this family that we call Midland Reformed Church. And so, Lord, we thank you for uh, this time. and We ask that you would um, bless us with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, beginning, uh, first of all, Romans chapter 14, I want to uh, actually uh, back up just a little bit further than the uh, verses that are listed in your bulletin. And if you would actually look uh, with me at the very first verse of Romans 14. So Romans 14, verse 1, we begin reading there in the first uh, 13 verses or so. And this is what Paul says. Accept Christians... Who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it is all right to eat anything, but another believer who has a sensitive conscience uh, will eat only vegetables. Those who think it's all right to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who won't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn God's servants? They are responsible to the Lord, so let let him tell them whether they are right or wrong. Uh, The Lord's power will help them do as they should. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day. Other persons think every day is alike. Uh, Each person should have a personal conviction about this matter. Those who have a special day for worshiping the Lord are trying to honor him. And those who eat all kinds of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who won't eat anything also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we are not our own masters we live, or when we, when we live or when we die. Uh, while we live, we live to please the Lord, and when we die, we go to be with the Lord. So in life and in death, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose so that he might be Lord of those who are alive and of those who have died. So why do you condemn other Christians? Uh, Why do you look down on another Christian? Remember, each of us will stand personally before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will confess allegiance to God. Yes, each of you will have to give a personal account to God. So don't condemn each other anymore. Uh, Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not put an obstacle in another Christian's path. And then we'll back up to uh, chapter 12. And here, um, beginning at verse 9, these words. Don't just pretend that you love others. Really love them. Uh, Hate what is wrong. Stand on the side of the good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy in your work, but serve the Lord enthusiastically. Be glad for all God is planning for you. Be patient in trouble and always be prayerful. Uh, When God's children are in need, you be the one to help them out and get into the habit of inviting guests home for dinner or, if they need lodging, for the night. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So let me just set the stage just a little bit uh, for uh, where we're at today. Last week, if you remember, uh, we were talking about the theme of gospel and the way that gospel shows up in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we talked about how big Paul's gospel really is, right? The gospel is not just a personal help for you. Because once in a while, you do something wrong. And when you do something wrong, like a child who gets caught in a lie, you have to say you're sorry and you have to get forgiveness. The gospel certainly announces that you are God's forgiven people. And that's very good news. But that isn't the end of the gospel. That isn't all that the gospel does. The gospel also says, Paul, is about the fact that you have been set free. Paul uses the language of powers. Uh, if if you uh, if if the uh, the Greek text used capital letters, uh, you would see that he capitalizes sin in death, capital sin, capital death. These powers, he says, have actually been defeated. And last week we used the illustration of the child soldiers, um, that um, a phenomenon that we find in many parts of the world. Children uh, are bought uh, or sold into slavery, or they're kidnapped. Uh, into uh, slavery. They're inundated and conditioned by a world of violence and degradation until they themselves actually become the perpetrators of violence against others. And these child soldiers, we said, don't just simply need forgiveness. Uh, They need to be set free. They need to be liberated from their captives. They need to be set free from a whole world uh, that they have been participating. They need to be rescued. And the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is that you have been set free. You have been set free from those powers that would hold you captive. You are both the victim and the perpetrator, always. You are both the captive and the captor, always. And you have been set free. That's how big the gospel is. And then he goes on and he says, and the gospel actually is even bigger than that because not only have you been set free from captivity and not only has everybody around you been set free from captivity, but our whole universe, the whole cosmos has been set free from this captivity. You've been set free. And then he goes on and he says, and yet, and yet, when we look around, we see signs of captivity that still persist. We know that our captivity in some way has already been uh, dealt with, but we also know that in other ways we're still captive. We're still under the powers. Uh, there are real threats that we face. There is real pain that we experience. Uh, in the cosmos, sometimes you would look and say the, the, the fabric of the universe itself almost uh, seems to be torn whether uh, you are in a panic about the new virus that seems to be sweeping the the globe, whether you're worried about melting ice caps or rising sea levels or shrinking water tables or the extinction of species, creation, says Paul, is groaning. We're not yet fully free from captivity to sin and to death. And Paul is also aware that The groaning of creation is echoed somehow in the divisions in this church that he writes to in the city of Rome. And for Paul, the divisions that he's addressing in this church in the city of Rome actually are a serious malignancy. Because Paul's big idea is that the church is supposed to be like a family. Uh, he, he believes that the church actually is the most important family that you will ever belong to. Uh, he, he says that the ties that you have with members of your church family actually become more important than the ties that you have with your biological family. Adoption is stronger than biology in the New Testament. Important family. And he also knows it's a little bit of a weird family. He knows it's a little bit unusual. He knows that people from all sorts of disparate, different sectors of society have been smashed together now into one family and told to figure out how to get along. He knows it can be hard and stressful to be a family like that. It's an important family. It's a weird family. And it's a family that does the sorts of things that any family does, including from time to time the family that that Paul is addressing eats together. And like any family that eats together, occasionally mealtime can be stressful. So to understand what's happening here, the church in Rome probably exists in multiple households, Uh, probably across the city, different parts of uh, society, smaller gatherings that come together in the evening to meet uh, together in a home where they'll eat a meal, they'll study scripture, they'll hear a letter that Paul has written, they'll pray together, they'll find ways to serve the poor of the city together. By the way, that house church uh, is the blueprint model that we intend you to follow as an Oasis group. And as long as each one of these sort of house churches stayed uh, with their own, there weren't any problems. But occasionally it seems that some of these house groups would come together and form a larger gathering. Maybe two or three house groups would come together, and when they came together, they would do the same sorts of things, including eat together. And when they came together and began to eat together, they discovered that they were not all alike, and that there were, in fact, some deep differences and deep divisions. Not surprisingly, those divisions showed up at the dinner table. It goes something like this. Maybe you're having a party. Your party uh, is going to be grand. It's important. Maybe it's the Fourth of July. Maybe it's a family reunion. Maybe it's Easter and you decide that you're going to invite family members from both sides of the family, and you're all going to come to your house, and they're all going to eat together. Aunt Helen comes, and Aunt Helen is a vegetarian. Aunt Helen isn't just a vegetarian, but Aunt Helen is committed to being a vegetarian. She's vocal about her vegetarianism. Meat eaters, she calls them garbage guts, are gross. They're gross, they're cruel to animals, and they promote unhealthy diets. Aunt Helen doesn't want her children exposed to meat eaters. Uncle Hank, on the other hand, is a barbecue fanatic. He competes in barbecue competitions. He travels. He has a trailer rig that he pulls behind his dually. He has spent 14 hours smoking some of the most delicious meat you can imagine. Tri-tip, brisket, ribs. He has his own special dry rub. He has a secret sauce. As you plan your gathering, you don't plan well, and Helen and Hank are seated next to each other at the table. And it doesn't take long for the fireworks to begin. Both are offended at the existence of the other. Both express their offense. Things begin to heat up, and before you know it, social media is involved. So uh, we have just a clip here to show you uh, where this kind of thing can go. Let's see if we can uh, see this video. All right, so... Some uh, irony in the video there, right? Uh, The irony that you pick up on is that uh, there's a sort of undercurrent. And you really quickly figure out that uh, they're not just talking about meat and vegetables, right? There's some deeper resentment that might be percolating just under the surface. Uh, It's about food, but it's not just about food. And that's what's happening in Rome. Uh, If we read the letter to the church in Rome and we say, "Ah, I don't understand, they're arguing about vegetables, it seems so distant, it seems so irrelevant, it doesn't have anything to do with us, nobody would ever do that in our world today. Uh, We need to go one more step and recognize that they're arguing about vegetables, but they're arguing about something more than that. It isn't just about preferences, uh, but it's pointing at differences that are deeper than the preferences. Maybe Aunt Helen at your table knows something about how the United States kills almost 10 billion land animals a year for food. She knows that uh, those animals are used to sustain a diet for Americans that is about three times the global average of meat per person per year. She knows something about the huge expenditure of resources it takes to produce and care for those animals. And so for Helen... The diet choice isn't just about taste, it isn't just about her own personal health, it isn't just about her own preference, but what she's doing is right. She is good. And the meat industry and those who support it are not just different, but they're harmful. And Hank, Uncle Hank, he shares different values. His values are about sharing and generosity and bonding over a meal. And rejecting the gift of his food is like rejecting him. It's insulting. So he is on the side of the good. He is generous. And Helen is selfish. Something like that is happening here in Rome. Paul says they're condemning each other. The Jews are having a hard time in Rome believing that the Gentiles can belong to God in the same special way that they belong to God and probably for good reason. Suddenly they find themselves smashed together in one large, weird, but important family, and they're told that you all belong to God equally, and the Jews just aren't sure about that. And then the Gentiles come along, who, by the way, is anybody that isn't a Jew, and the Gentiles say, I don't know if the Jews have it anymore. These are the people who rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And they seem to be uh, still mired in sort of dietary and ceremonial law. They're still counting special days. And the Gentiles are having a hard time that the Jews even know what it means to live by grace. Both groups are looking down on the other. Neither group was satisfied to just say, we do things differently in our church. We do things differently at our meal table. It isn't just that we're different. They're saying, You're wrong. They're saying you're condemned. That is to say you're sinful before God. Uh, The word condemned there sometimes is translated as you are judged before God. You are despised by God. The word is used to describe the tax collector in Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector at the temple. Remember the story when the tax collector uh, is sitting in the, in the uh, temple and, and uh, the Pharisee comes along and the Pharisee is so filled with his own significance and goodness and he despises the tax collector. That's the word. Uh, it's the same word that is actually used to describe the way that Herod and his soldiers viewed Jesus um, on the eve of his crucifixion. They see Jesus dragged before them and they despised Jesus. It describes the way that some of Paul's detractors in the church complained about him, saying he wasn't a legitimate apostle. He wasn't uh, authoritative. Nobody should have to listen to Paul. They said that he was worthless, judged, despised, worthless. That's the language that Paul is using to describe this mealtime. Not just irritation. Not just differences, but division. So it's one one thing for us in the church to say, you know, I get it. There are some people here who like potlucks, and some people here who prefer to have a kitchen prepare your food. Uh, There are some people here who have one kind of music style, and other people who have a different kind of music style. Some people like light carpeting, and some people like dark carpeting. Sometimes we have disagreements about which missionary to fund. We get it. There will be differences. But it's another thing. It's another thing to say, but we deeply, deeply, deeply believe that God is on our side of the argument. The other person is sinning by holding their view. The most compassionate version of that is to say, I know that I'm supposed to love you and it isn't very loving to let you continue to sin. If I think that somebody is sinning by eating meat, can I still go to the same party that they go to? Can I sit at the same table that they sit at? If I think that somebody is eating meat, can I even belong to the same church that that person belongs to? Wouldn't I somehow be condoning their eating of meat? Wouldn't I be helping them to sin? The least compassionate version of all of that is to say, You're a sinner, and that's disgusting to me. And I will avoid you, I will mock you, I will say that you are worthless. So, Paul, all through Romans, is going to be holding up the question, how are we supposed to deal with deep divisions in a church or in a family when someone on at least one side of that division, and usually on both sides of that division, thinks that the matter is about sin, thinks that the issue is life and death, good and evil, And Paul is going to say there is something that you can do. There is a way that you can show up in the midst of that kind of division. And he doesn't say that you have to give up. And he doesn't say you have to give in. I want you to hear that really clearly. Paul doesn't ever ever say to anybody at the table, the the vegetable people, the meat people, the special day people, the every day is the same people. He says, Jews, Gentiles, nobody has to give up and walk away. He says, there's a lot at stake for you to find a way to be together. Paul knows that the witness and the mission of the church is at stake. And so he never counsels anybody to say, well, if somebody is offensive to you, you should just go away and find something else. You don't have to go and do it. He never says, give up. And then he also never says, give in. He never ever says, one of you has to change the way that you think. One of you needs to get new theology. He never says that to the Jew or to the Gentile. Here's his surprising advice. His guidance is this. Even if you think somebody else is sinning, don't judge the sin in them. Even if you think somebody else is sinning, don't judge the sin in them verses 7 through 12 of chapter 14, gives his theological reason for that. This is what he says. You belong to Jesus. Jesus is the one who set you free from the powers of sin and death. Jesus is the one who put you into this new, big, important, but weird family called the church. Jesus is the one who is responsible for your standing with God. He says, you've been set free by Jesus. And then he says, and eventually, you will stand before Jesus. You will have to give an account. Your knee will bow before the throne and you will have to give an account. Everybody will have to give an account. But Paul, they're sinning. The things that they eat, Did you see that plate of pork? It's like they don't even believe the scriptures. And Paul says, I know. But don't condemn anybody anymore. Question. If there's someone who belongs to Jesus and you are mocking them, If you are scorning them, if you are looking down on them, rejecting them, treating them as though they are worthless, can you stop it? Paul says it's an offense to the gospel, it evacuates the power of grace, and it's a cancer in the church. And then, he says, not only should you stop condemning, not only should you stop judging, but he says, instead, put the focus on how you are living. He asked a question in verse 13. What would it look like for you to not be an obstacle to somebody else's faith? Back in chapter 12, we find The rest of Paul's advice for living with differences. He says, how how would you live in such a way that you are not the obstacle to somebody else's faith? What would it look like to do that? Back in chapter 12, we see what Paul thinks might happen if we were to all take that responsibility. The theological side of Paul's argument is don't judge. Don't disdain. You all belong to Jesus, and Jesus will sort it out in the end. Jesus will do that. It's a big, strong, robust picture of grace. It's a big, strong, robust picture of Jesus. And then here's his practical side. Here's how he says, don't be an obstacle in front of somebody else. He says, love others. Don't just pretend to love others, but really do it. Then he says, have genuine affection. Don't be a hypocrite. Another way to look at that is don't wear a mask of of pretense, a mask of niceness. Don't smile at somebody and think something differently about them. Now that might pose a problem for some of us. If I really don't like somebody, how am I supposed to love them? And if Paul is saying, you have to really love them, really love them, and I don't really love them, but I act like I like, love them, isn't that putting me right back into the category of being the hypocrite that he says I shouldn't be? How do I get out of that bind? And at least part of the answer for that for Paul is that love is never about what people feel towards another person. And it's almost always about, he uses the, the agape language for love here. it's almost always about how you behave towards another person. In fact, in the early church, the idea of love was almost always uh, directly connected to the, uh, the responsibility of helping people out in their needs, especially their financial needs, and then also to praying for them. Then he says, not only should you genuinely love somebody, but he says you should take delight in honoring them. Take delight in honoring them. It's different from the response that most of us would have, that I would have, is how do I defeat them? How do I make sure that that dangerous and deadly position doesn't get out into the church? How do I discredit them? And he doesn't use the language of discrediting them or defeating them. He says, take delight in honoring them. Instead of disdaining them, honor them. Here's an assignment for you. Go onto one of your social media platforms and find a post of somebody who belongs in the family of Jesus, who has posted an opinion about something that matters to you but is different from yours. It won't be hard. Here's the hard part. And then post something there that honors that person. Post something there that honors the person that you disagree with. Why? Because Paul says we all belong to the same family. We've all been adopted into the same family. We all belong at the same table, not because I decided it or you decided it, but because Jesus decided it and he gave his life for it to happen. In that family, Jesus says, you honor each other. Honoring each other, Paul says, doesn't mean that you have to change your unique thoughts or your ideas or your beliefs. And it certainly doesn't mean that you pretend that differences don't exist or that sometimes those differences aren't real and sometimes that there are costly outcomes to the positions that people hold. Recognizing all of that, he says, love and honor. And then he says, and stand with. Each other. The practical advice goes on in verse twelve, and he has a whole series of commands. He says, "Be glad. Uh, uh, wear this opportunity. Wear these challenges uh, uh, with a with a sense of joyfulness and gladness." He says, "Be patient. Uh, don't expect this to get ironed out overnight." He says, "Always be helpful." Be helpful. Uh, If you're the vegetable eater, maybe you can uh, help the the children of your meat-eating friend uh, get their plate to the table. Be helpful. And then he says, be hospitable. Specifically, he says, invite people over to your house. Who does he have in mind there? Your tribe and your friends and the people that you already agree with? He's talking to a divided, complex, messy family. And he says, step into that by inviting some of these people over to your house for dinner. And so we're right back where we started. We're right back at the dinner table. Listening to Paul's theological point, don't judge, that's Jesus' job. And letting that theological point lead to the practical step. So have them over for dinner instead. That's what unity looks like. Now, go and do likewise. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, uh, Thank you for this important, vital, life-giving family that is big and messy and weird and hard. Thank you that we belong to you. Thank you for what you have done for each one of us so that we can stand before you with joy and know that we are yours. And Lord, as we belong to you, help us to understand the complex ways that we belong to each other. Ways that will call us to discomfort, ways that will call us to sacrifice, ways that will call us to help, ways that will call us to dinner. Thank you that we belong to your family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.